We've been there, and we've all had these bad church experiences, and that's what this series, Wonky, has been about for the past several weeks. But today, I want to start with a question. I want to take you guys back to your elementary school playground. Can you get there? Can you imagine that? Can you get back there? So here's my question. At recess, that incredible time of the day, which was everybody's favorite, what was the game you played on your elementary playground? Foursquare. What else? Kickball. What else? Dodgeball. Yes. What else? Tetherball. Anybody? That's the first tetherball we've had today. Anything else? Tag? Some of you are like, I didn't play games. I stood on the wall, right? <laughs> That's what you're saying. <laughs> so we had these games. For me, there were two games. When I was in about third grade, our PE teacher did the fundraising thing and got two regulation size soccer goals. So when it was dry and it was warm, we were out on the soccer field. The PE teacher was refing, and it was incredible. I learned to play soccer there. Then we had Foursquare. And four, how many of you played Foursquare? growing up. Now, on my playground, Foursquare was the game. That was 95% of my recess memories. Now, here's the thing about Foursquare, and I don't know what your rules were. I'm going to tell you my rules. You don't get to disagree with me today. It was home field advantage, okay? Here's what the rules were. Two very simple rules. No spikes. You with me? Anybody have spikes allowed? Wow, okay. I know. The guys are like, that was the fun part. And the line was in. Okay, the line was in. If you hit the line, the ball was in. Some of you, I can tell, didn't play Foursquare. You're confused by the whole thing. So bear with me because those were the rules. And what I remember about soccer and Foursquare and recess in general was like 95% of my memories are fun. It was just great. It was enjoyable. It was incredible. But I also remember about every day there were these incredible arguments. Anybody with me? You remember the playground arguments? Even though the rules were simple... There were these incredible conflicts, and I think it's because fourth and fifth grade boys are, are gifted by God with the gift of argumentation. Like, that's, that's what I think happens, and girls maybe have the gift of drama, and we, like, we, we get all that, and, and I would say, like, ladies, maybe you don't remember the intensity of Foursquare, because I could tell you, even now, I could tell you the name of the guy, many of you would know him, so I'm not going to say it, who inhabited the number one square. You know the number one square? You get to serve You get to set everybody else up. You get to, and I wanted the number one square, and he would never let me in the number one square. And I still am convinced it because it was because he was cheating, right? Now he would say he never cheated. The line was in no spikes, but I think he was a cheater. Ladies, I bet you're the same way. You maybe remember Sally in second grade who made the mean comment to you, and you still remember what she was wearing that day. Are you with me? And you still don't really like her. She's still in this town, and you got some issues, and you're not sure she ever really asked for forgiveness. So we're not gonna. Is everybody with me? So the playground was the place of fun, but it was also this incredible place of of arguments and fighting and and conflict. And I I thought, you know, here's here's the real question today. Why is it that so many of our churches end up feeling like the arguments on our schoolyard playgrounds? Like, why do our churches so often feel like a playground brawl? You know what I mean? We, we had a mentor through Appalachian Impact a couple years ago, and he was, he was going to the elementary school and had this student, and he showed up one day, and the principal said, well, I just want you to know your student is showing real leadership potential. And he said, what do you mean? And he said, and John, John's here. I didn't think you were here. John was the mentor. He could tell you more of this story. And he said, what do you mean? And she said, well, he kind of incited, incited a revolution at recess today. <laughs> and it is. The playground is that place. It's the place where conflict and fun and all those things go together. And the problem is that many times today, that's what our churches feel like. Have you been in a church where there was fighting between the people 
in the church. Maybe I should just say, have you been in the church? Then, because if you have, chances are there's, there's conflict, there's fighting, there's, there's these arguments that take place because it's incredibly common. We're in the fourth series, fourth week of the series called wonky, and I know the word is funny, but so is the church. We define the word wonky as something that means off-center or askew or maybe not functioning correctly. And we've said that many times that's what the church feels like. And here's what I think. If you're here and you're someone who would say, I follow Jesus, I'm a Christian, you probably know people who don't follow Jesus, and you understand that their problem a lot of times is not with Jesus, but it's with the church. Some of you are here and you would say, you know what, I'm not a Christian. I don't call myself a Christian. And I would just say to you, welcome, I'm thrilled that you're here. Please don't feel any pressure to just think like I do or act like we do. Like, bring all your questions, all your doubts. But maybe you would say that. Maybe your friends would say that. You would say, when it comes to faith, when it comes to spirituality, I can get behind Jesus. I think Jesus was a great teacher. He taught all these incredible things. Maybe you're not so sure about the miracles part of stuff, but you feel like the moral teaching was there, and maybe you feel like it's not Jesus I have a problem with, it's the church. It's organized religion. It's the fact that so many Christians want to proclaim a Savior who rose from the dead, but they can't get along with each other for more than an hour on Sunday mornings. And that's just wonky. Because I think we know people like that. And so over the past four weeks, we've been building this survival guide. If you haven't been here, go back and listen to the podcast. But we've been building this survival guide for those who would say, I want to follow Jesus, but I really have a hard time loving or even liking the church. And so today I want to ask that question very clearly. Why is it that our church, the church as a whole, so many different churches often feel like a playground brawl? I've been in so many places where fighting in the church took place. One time I was a junior high pastor and we were having a night of worship. And I remember as the band, I don't know if they were playing or setting up, but all the kids are gathered, all the seventh and eighth grade kids are gathered and the boys are kind of hanging out and looking cool and trying to look cool in the back. And all of a sudden I look and there's two boys fist fighting during worship night. It's incredible. I was like, this, this is a great story for years to come. So I ran over, I grabbed him, I take him down to my office. And I'm like, what are you doing? Well, he said, they're talking over each other. I said, knock it off. Why are you doing this? And they're looking, and the one little boy was going to get killed. I saved his life. Like, I literally was like, I saved your life, and next week I'm going to tell you about Jesus and how he saved you. This is a perfect sermon. Thank you. You just don't understand it yet. And I'm, I'm talking to him, and I said, guys, this is the church. Why would you do this in the church? Why would you well, go fight on the playground? Like, what are you doing? And they literally looked at each other, and they were like, yeah, it's kind of dumb. Sorry, man. Yeah, sorry, man. And they moved on. And I thought, if only we could get the adults in the church to do that. If only we could get the adults to show that much reconciliation or forgiveness. Because when it comes to conflict in the church, it's painful, it's personal, it's hard. If you look up definitions of conflict, here's what, here's what it says. It, it says that a conflict is a disagreement about values, goals, methods, or facts of a situation. Now, that, doesn't this sound so logical? Like, that's a good definition. It's disagreements over the values of a situation or organization. Here's what conflict, I think, really means. Here's the real definition. Conflict is, I feel bad. <laughs> or someone made me feel bad. And I'm really unhappy because I feel bad. See, I don't think we rationally, when it comes to conflict, when it comes to fighting in church world, we don't often sit down and go, oh, I had a disagreement. We just value other things and we need to see this. right. We don't do that. We say that what you did, what you said, how you said it, the way that you did it, it feels bad to me and I'm not happy about that because it's very 
very personal. You guys awake? You with me? How many of you have been in churches where this is reality? Maybe you're in a church right now where this is reality for you. Here's the good news. Again, this is not new. This is not anything that for churches is something that is, oh my gosh, suddenly we have conflict. The church of Jesus has never had conflict. This is something that has existed from the very, very beginning of the church's existence. And what's brilliant about the writers of the New Testament is that when they deal with their churches, when they deal with the churches in Corinth and the Roman church and Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi, they are dealing with churches that have this fighting. They're dealing with churches that feel at times like the playground brawl, and they're dealing with these things. And most of the time, the Apostle Paul writes, and he has this perfect mix of grace and truth, which so often today we don't have. Right? Some of you are truth people. Truth people are like, they love to talk about hard stuff. Let's tell the truth. Let's talk about sin. Step on all the toes. Let's go. Anybody truth person? You don't have to admit it. You can just show me a fist, like whatever you want to do. Some of you are grace people. And grace people go, well, let's, let's not talk about too many hard things. Let's just talk about the love of God because the love of God transforms hearts. Let God's love. And what we need is a mix of grace and and truth. So we're going to look at a passage today in the book of 1 Corinthians, and what I want to show you is that there was no more jacked up church than the Corinthians church. And in this passage, you're, you're like, yeah, maybe, but you're going to see it. You're going to see how messed up it was. And Paul actually deals with the way that these churches could handle their conflict over one specific issue. Let's look at chapter 5. We'll start at verse 1. Here's what Paul says. It's actually reported. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you in a church. Shocker. Holy cow, right? It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. He says, you're doing things that the pagans don't do. He says, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Some of you are like, I never heard this sermon. Let's go, right? This is a stepmother, okay? This is a situation where Paul says, it has been reported to me that there is incest taking place within your church. And he says this, and you're proud. You're proud of who you are. He says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, he says, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, remember he's writing a letter, he says, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Now he drops the truth. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit in the power of our Lord Jesus is present, here's what he says to do. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now some of you, the grace people are like, whoa. This is tough. Hand this man over to Satan? This, this sounds so harsh. Why would you do that? See, Paul is confronting, first of all, with truth, saying, let's just call it what it is. Let's be honest about the fact that you in this church are proud of yourselves and you're jacked up. You got stuff going on that you need to deal with. And it's stuff that's going on among you who are Christians who are claiming to follow Christ. Now listen, if you're here today and you would say, I'm not a Christian, you are off the hook. You simply get to sit back and judge all the Christians in the room. So welcome to the party, okay? If you are a Christian, this is hard because here's the first thing Paul says about church conflict. He says, you have a responsibility to protect the integrity of God's presence among his people. 
You, as believers in Jesus, have this incredible responsibility, this calling, that when it comes to your life together, the way you do life together creates integrity of what it looks like to non-believers when Jesus lives among people. The way you do your relationships, that reveals to the world what Jesus is like. What's your church saying about what Jesus is like? And by the way, this is a very Old Testament way of thinking because in the Old Testament, the Jewish people had a place called the temple. And the temple was the worship house. It was the place where they went. And in the temple, there were places where the closer you got, the further you got into the temple, the more of God's presence you would get. So when you got to the Holy of Holies as the priest, that was the holiest place. So understand this. Based on the temple, the closer you got to God, the more of God's presence you got. Everybody with me? Now, here's what happens. Jesus dies on the cross, and the curtain before the Holy of Holies is ripped in two, and the presence of God comes into the world and scatters out of the temple so that the temple is no longer necessary. And God's dwelling, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. He says to the church now, listen, he says, you are the temple of God. Where you are, that's where God is. And so don't miss this. Now, he says, when you're worshiping together and you've got these unresolved things and these things that need called out, these things that are clearly sin, that are clearly brokenness, you need to call them out because otherwise you're compromising the integrity of God's presence. You're gathering together claiming to walk with the presence of God, but you're missing the point because you're not being changed. How could we have the presence of God and not be changed by the presence of God. Jesus prayed for this, right? In John 17, before he goes to the cross, he prays for all believers that would ever come. He prays for his disciples first. Then he says this, my prayer is not just for those disciples. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That, now watch this, all of them. Guess what? You're in all of them. Look at your neighbor. Say, I'm in all of them. I know, it's uncomfortable. Jesus says, I pray for all of them that all of them may be Baptist, Methodist, and Episcopalian, and Lutheran, and no, that they may be one, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Now, why does he pray this? This is the reason. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, Jesus is praying, but he's prophesying. He's basically saying, if the church doesn't function as one, the world's not going to believe that you sent me. If the church isn't unified, if the church isn't walking in unity, but they're constantly arguing with each other, conflicted with each other, mad at each other, going to one service so the other person doesn't go to the other service, if they're constantly divided, then the world will not believe in Jesus because Jesus says, I want them to be one. Friends, can I just say this to you? The the believers, non-Christians, you get to amen this if you want. The church for too long has been a place where we avoid talking and confronting and calling out sin for what it is. Now, some of you are going, yeah, you need to preach more about sin. Listen, I didn't say preach about sin. I said calling out sin. Paul says this, stop putting up with believers who don't act like believers. He's saying you should be in a deep enough relationship with each other that when you see each other stumbling or walking away from God or rejecting what God has in store, that you actually speak into each other's lives and say, this is not okay. This is not what Christ has for for you. You need to live up to this. Now, here's what we do today. I'm not saying calling out sin by calling up your pastor. That's what a lot of you want to do. Pastor, 
you need to know, any conversation that starts like, you need to know so-and-so has a problem. Well, thank you for telling me. Since she's your mom, why don't you go deal with her, right? Like that's, that's the reality, is that I'm getting this information or you're giving this information to other people, maybe not even to me, but you're saying, did you know, right, we're triangling, I got an issue with her or him, and I'm telling him and not him? <laughs> you need to know that this is going on. That's not confronting sin. You need to walk in deep enough relationship with the people around you that it gives you permission for accountability to say, I will hold you to this. Because we are called to encourage, to walk beside each other, to hold each other accountable. As iron sharpens iron, that's what Proverbs says, that we rub up against each other. Listen, here's the reality. Most of us don't have or don't want friends like this. Do you realize that? And, and, and you may disagree with me. You may, no, I want real friends like that. No, you don't, because I see your social media feed. And your social media feed says, tough day, having a tough day. And then your friends start sending their good vibes. I don't even know what that is. I wish I could send good vibes. I don't know what that means, but people send them all the time to make their friends feel better. Prayers, good vibes, here you go. And we go, oh, I have such good friends. They love me when life's tough. See, I want the friend who comes to me and says, life's a little bit crappy right now because you're a little bit crappy right now. We don't have those friends, most of us. We don't want those friends. And I'm saying we need those relationships that are deep enough if the people that you're with following Christ together are never saying to you, hey, you can do this, I can cheer you on, we can walk together, then you don't have accountability. Let's keep going. Verse nine of chapter five, Paul says this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Then he says this. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. I love Paul. Paul's like, listen, I told you not to be around the sexually immoral people and the idolaters and all that. But he's saying, I'm not talking about the people in your community and the world. You'd have to get out of the world to get away from all the immoral people. And he says this. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone, now underline this, who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And then he quotes this, expel the wicked person from among you. Check this tension out. Paul, in the first verses we read, he says, it is our responsibility to maintain the integrity of God's presence among his people. So when it comes to other Christ followers, people that you're walking and following Jesus with, you call each other out. You hold each other accountable. You spur each other on. But then he says this, you also have an incredible responsibility when it comes to those who don't know Jesus to not judge them, to only extend grace to them. Why would you judge someone who doesn't know Jesus as if they should know Jesus? But you know what the problem in the church is so often? Why churches are wonky? We've reversed this, and what happens is we are condoning the sins of our community and condemning the sins of our crowd. We're condoning the sins because we don't want to hold someone accountable. We don't want to have hard conversations. We don't want to have conflict. We don't want to deal with biblical reconciliation. And instead, we're looking at the world going, can you believe what those non-Christians did? How dare they? Why are we surprised when non-Christians act like non-Christians? Are you with me? Like, why, why are we shocked by that? Oh, my goodness, our, our, our pagan friends are acting like pagans. 
they have more integrity than you do because you're a Christian and you're not acting like a Christian. See, we're often condoning the sins of our community, the people around us, because we don't want to go there. And Paul says, stop it. We got to deal with these things. You have a responsibility to maintain the integrity of God's presence, but you also have a responsibility to show nothing but grace to those who do not have a relationship with Christ. Then he goes in chapter six. Here's what he says. If any of you, this is really practical. You ready? He says, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? So here's what happens. The church has conflict. Imagine that. And they're running out to the judges in their city. Hey, can you judge this case for us? He says, why are you doing that? Verse two. He says, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, which matters? All the matters. Idolatry, slander, incest, sexual immorality, all this stuff that's uncomfortable in church world. If you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Are you going to go to pagans to judge Christ followers? That doesn't make sense, Paul says. He says, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead, now watch this, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. So he says, we have this responsibility to guard the integrity of God's presence. He says, you have this responsibility to show grace to those who don't know Jesus. Then he says this, we all, every single one of us, have the calling, the responsibility to deal with our own junk. You got to deal with your junk before you worry about everybody else's junk. You've got to confront those things in your life. You have to let God work in that way. It's what Jesus said about don't point out the speck in someone else's eye if you've got the plank in your own eye. Because here's the reality. When we're on our playground, this faith in Jesus is our playground, and we are having a playground brawl, nobody wants to play with us. Nobody wants to join the church that can't get along, that can't do anything but judge those outside of them and fight with those inside of them. Why would they want to follow that Jesus? See, Jesus makes this so clear in Matthew 18. You want to know how to handle conflict in your life? I'm going to give you the most practical teaching I've ever given you right here, and all I'm going to do is read some verses. Here's what it says. Jesus says this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. That sounds fun, right? I would love to tell my friends about their faults. No, just between the two of you. Everybody say the two of you. That's not the three of you. That's not your Snapchat fam. That's not your, cr your crowd. That's not so-and-so to make the triangle, right? I got a problem with, with you, and so I'm gonna go to you. That's just between the two of you. That means nobody else should know about your problem until the person you have a problem with knows about your problem. That's as practical as scripture gets. If you have a problem, if your brother or sister sins or sins against you, some of the translations say, go and point out their sin to them. Now, some of you are like, that's awesome. I have the right to go and tell them they're sinful. The heart of this passage is about reconciliation. The heart of this passage is my brother or sister has fallen, they're broken, there is sin in their life, there's something not right, and I'm brokenhearted because their relationship with God must be hurting. They treated me poorly, well, what do we know? Hurt people hurt others. So now I'm brokenhearted for them and I'm seeking their good, not my right to be right, 
I'm seeking their good. I'm gonna go and point that out just between the two of you. Now watch what he says next. If they listen to you, you've won them over. You've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now again, some of you are like, oh cool, now I can bring my friends. Now I can bring the people that agree with me. No, these are witnesses. These are people who have the same heartbeat as you. These are people who will walk beside you. They're part of your community. They're part of your crowd. These are the people that you share relationship with that say, we want to walk beside you. Here's the reality. Some of you go, I don't know how I'd do that. And I will say, it's because you've never done the first part. Most of us in this room have never had the opportunity or the ability to sit with someone one-on-one and go, I haven't communicated this to anybody else. I haven't talked about you to anyone else. I just want to say, I feel like there's something going on. I feel like there's something broken. There's something that's not okay. Something that, that maybe you've sinned against me and I just want to spell it out for you or, or something struggling in your life and I want to call, I want to hold you accountable to this. Most of us have never gotten there, let alone to the point of someone saying, you know what, I'm not dealing with this and now I got to grab two or three people and say, let's go. We've got to be around our sister and brother because we're committed to Christ. Can I just tell you something fun? Some of you are here and you're going, I will never get along with that person. Doesn't matter what you say. Well, guess what? I got good news. If they're a Christian, you get to spend eternity together. Isn't that fun? I love that. I love when people come to me and like, well, there's just conflict, you know, conflict, conflict, conflict. And I'm like, well, have you had a chance to reconcile? Well, I don't know if that's possible. Oh, man, that's going to make eternity a really long time. Because I have a feeling Jesus is up there building your mansion right by theirs. <laughs> that's kind of what I think has taken place. I don't know. I don't have theology to prove that. It might even be on the same lot, Right? You might share a room for a while. I don't know. But I think it's reality. I think there's a reality that when it comes to eternity and God says all my people will be together worshiping the Savior of the universe, that none of us are going to be worshiping the Savior of the universe and distracted going, I can't believe what you did to me in second grade. Hallelujah, Jesus. But I can't believe what you did. None of us are going to do that in eternity. So why do we do it here? Why do we do it? Because we're scared to death to follow the biblical principles. He says, you got a problem? Go and point it out to them. They listen, great. If not, take two or three. And then it says this. If they still refuse to listen, which chances are they won't, but tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. See, Jesus doesn't expect us to keep going and getting beat up in these toxic relationships. He says, go by yourself, take someone with you, and then pull in the relationship, the leadership of the church to say, this is an issue, we've got to confront it, and we're going to be obedient to this. Can I just tell you, this is my least favorite part. This is our leadership team, our elders team, least favorite part of church ministry. But we have and we will do it. We don't get excited about it. Some of you are like, oh, that's what you guys like to do. No, we don't. I pray to God you never call me with these problems. But we will do that when you've done the first two steps. We will be obedient to the scripture when you've been obedient to the scripture. Because Jesus said, this is the way to do it. Paul concludes in this, in, in this passage in 1 Corinthians 6. He says this, the very fact, the very, he says, the, the reality that you have, lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. He says, why not, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? 
Like, why would you not just surrender for the sake of Christ? He says, you're taking these issues in your church, outside of your church, and you're doing it in front of unbelievers, and you're running to the courts, and you're saying, well, you have to help us, you have to help us. And he says, you're perfectly capable of being obedient to these things in the church, and the fact that you even have these things mean you've been defeated already. You've compromised the integrity of God's presence among you by being defeated by disunity. See, the basis of unity is this, humility. The way that a church stays unified is humility. If you've been in churches, and I know you all have that have been in churches, if you've been in this church, it is when we lose humility that we lose unity. Because when we lose humility, we cling to this thing called our right to be right. If you're married, you know this, right? I have a right. I have the right to be heard. I have the right to be Listen to, I have the right to be right. Don't you think Jesus had the right to be right? I, I thought about that. I thought when Jesus came to earth and, and, and he recognized that he was gonna go to the cross and his disciples were all gonna flee from him and they were gonna nail him to this tree and he was gonna suffer. What, I wonder what would happen if Jesus was like, well, I'll do it, but I'd like to be heard first. I'd like to take a minute to explain to you why this is wrong. I just want to get my thoughts out. Can I just get my words out? You ever heard that? You ever said that? Can I just get my words out? Will you just listen to me for a minute? But Jesus, in his cry for unity, gave up his right to be right. Philippians 2, it says this, and your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What's the mindset of Christ Jesus? Here's what it says. Being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He gave up his right to be God. That's what he did when he went to the cross. Rather, he made himself nothing. The word there in Greek is kenosis. It's emptying. I will empty every part of myself I will make myself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I love this, right? Because Jesus says, I'll give up my right to be right for the sake of the body of Christ. A couple weeks ago, I showed you guys this, this diagram. Go ahead to the, the slide. That many of us, our relationship when it comes to our faith should be strongest with Jesus and that out of that relationship with Jesus, we then have a relationship with the church. That those two things are directly connected and that's the right order. The problem is many of us have messed this up because we came to Christ in a church and so the church became super important to us and when the relationships in that church broke down, our relationship with Jesus began to weaken. And this is what conflict does. If conflict is about, I feel bad, someone made me feel bad, then I have put someone else at the center of my relationship to God rather than Jesus himself. And what I'm asking you to do today is replace the other people and say, Jesus is first, and because of Jesus, I can go and seek reconciliation, or I can understand this is a toxic relationship, and I'm not able to continue this. It's all about the way we prioritize these things. What, what do churches fight about? You know what churches fight about? Sometimes it's theology. Anybody ever been in a church that's got a theological struggle? And, and by the way, I would say this. If you feel like we're off on theology, I pray that you'll come and talk to me. <laughs> I pray that you'll come and talk to me. Because <laughs> I'd love to hear from you rather than six other people say, well, I heard that you, you believe that this is the case. No, come and talk. Let's discuss this thing. Come to our leadership team. If, you, if I don't listen, come and talk to our leadership. Let's have those things. Let's feel those things out. The churches often don't fight about that. More often, 
They're fighting about things like, like these are the studies I read this week. They fight about the lifestyle of the pastor. That's where a lot of conflict comes from. What I mean by that is not the pastor morally fails. It means the pastor has not dressed the right way. Thank you for not fighting with me about that. The pastor has a different view on drinking than they do. The pastor um, doesn't go to the right groups. Why doesn't the pastor come to my ministry meeting? Why do you not come and show up at our thing? Why, why? Th- that's one of the questions. The, 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 oftentimes the fight is about the pastor's wife's involvement and the pastor's wife doesn't wear enough rompers and sit on the front row or jumpers. Or, are you with me? That, that there are these silly things that come in. Sometimes that's the issue. Other times the issue, and many of you have felt this, is what we call worship wars. Ever been a part of a church with a worship war? You maybe have, you just didn't know it. Somebody decided that they were going to put a guitar on stage and not the organ any longer. Somebody decided they were going to sing something other than hymns. Are you with me? Has anybody felt this? This this group does not seem to be too awake and alive this morning. Apparently, you've never had conflict in church. Somebody said, well, we're going to put a drum set on stage. And if you have a drum set on stage, then you cannot be a follower of Jesus unless you put the plastic clear box around it to contain the noise. That We understand that these are the conflicts that take place in church. What I'm saying to you is that every time those things emerge, we have replaced our relationship with Jesus first with our relationship with the church first. And we're missing the point. And it turns into a playground brawl. So as we start to close today, here's what I want to give you. I want to give you a couple survival questions, things that are really practical that I think when it comes to conflict in the church, all of us need to ask of ourselves and the way we're walking with Christ. Here's the first one. Is there someone that you're in relationship with that you need to hold accountable? Is there somebody in your faith, your Christ-following tribe, remember, if you're not a Christ-follower, you just get to judge us, right? So this is the, those who are following Christ that would say, I'm in relationship with this person and I need to step up and hold them accountable because I have not been faithful as a friend to honor them, to seek God's good in their life and I see things that they're struggling with, I see that they're broken, I see that they've sinned or they've hurt me and I need to hold them accountable. And then the second question, and maybe this is more important, is there someone that's holding you accountable? Do you have someone that's speaking into your life saying, you know what, you are out of line. I would encourage every one of you, find someone weekly that will call you, that will sit down with you, that will say, hey, what are you struggling with? What do you see me struggling with? That you're walking together in that accountability. Here's the next set of questions. Are you judging someone who doesn't know Jesus by a standard based on knowing Jesus? Maybe it's a family member that doesn't know Christ and you're going, well, I just can't believe you would act like that. Why don't you, why don't you just change? Why don't you shift? And they don't know Jesus, so you're judging them based on a standard that they have no concept of. Maybe it's a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, some, somebody that, that you're closely connected to. Do you need to let that go? And then here's the third question. Is there junk in your life that you haven't dealt with? Is there stuff that you know deep down, you know what? This is just an ugly part of me. This is just an angry part of me. This is a hurt part of me. And you know what? Hurt people hurt others. So I've got to confront this junk in my life. My prayer, and I'm gonna invite the band to come, my prayer, my vision really for what a church can and should be for a long time has been this image, right? That it's less like a movie theater. You know what I mean by movie theater? Front to back. All the action happens up here and you guys kind of chip in where you need to and then everybody goes out and moves on with their life. I don't want a movie theater church. 
I kind of want more of a church that's a living room or a kitchen. Because you know what happens in the living room and the kitchen? Relationships. It's a lot of interaction. My, I don't know what your living room is like. My living room with, with three daughters and my wife is noisy. That's my living room. Everybody's talking at once. Everybody's telling us. Everybody's interacting in different ways. And man, when we get the extended family together, that living room is real noisy. You with me? And see, what I want in that living room is that, that there's action, that there's involvement in each other's lives. Because here's what I think. I think that Jesus spelled this out for us in Matthew 5. We'll look at verse 23. Here's what Jesus says. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember there that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. And that to me sounds like a living room. I'm, I'm standing in the living room and I'm worshiping going, God, how you love us, how you love us. God, you have such great love for us. You have, oh my gosh, God loves me so much. And I hurt my brother or sister. I can't even sing this song without going and seeking reconciliation. See, the vision of the church that I have is this place where as these songs are sung, as these words are spoken, that God's spirit is so full in your heart, so present in your life that you go, I cannot sing another word until I go to the back of the room and ask the person that I've hurt for forgiveness. I can't move one step closer to God until I go and point out to the person, hey, you've deeply hurt me. I don't know if you're aware of this and I haven't been faithful because I've been holding it in, but I just love you so much in Jesus' name that we've gotta confront these things. We've gotta deal with these things. I love the image of a church where there's movement and living room and even as we sing this last song that people are going, you know what, we've gotta deal with stuff. I gotta come to the altar and say, God, I've gotta repent of this junk in my life. I can't carry it anymore because here's the reality and I'm gonna share this and I'm done. If that stuff is in your life, if that junk is under the surface of your life, if you've got people even in this church that you're going, I don't want to deal with them, I can't, I can't go there, there's, there's just, they hurt me and they don't realize, that creates a barrier for the rest of us to worship God. I'm just gonna say that because that's the nature of the church. We are all deeply connected. We are greater than I. So what happens is when you confront the things that you haven't been confronting, when you seek reconciliation in the biblical way, I know that that's super hard, but it's not just about you. It's not even just about you and the other person. It's about the fact that you are saying for the good of this faith community, I will go and make this right. I will go and seek reconciliation because when I do that, the worship experience supernaturally, I believe, becomes freer that the Holy Spirit says, now you are responding to me and you can worship in stronger ways because you've been obedient to the things I've called you to be obedient to. And friends, I'm your pastor, but I can't make that decision for you. You have to be obedient to those things. So let's pray together.